Okay, if you would please turn to the book of First Peter. I'll be reading First Peter chapter one, verses ten through twelve in a moment. First Peter chapter one, verses ten through twelve. Let's pray. Father, cause the essence of the spirit of worship to rise up here this morning in order that we may be awed, grateful, floored with being saved from our sin unto becoming the bride of Christ and anticipating an inheritance laid up for us. May we feel deeply about you, that you are infinitely wise in all of this to the glory of your Son, Jesus. Amen. The question before us this morning in our text in verses 10 to 12 of 1 Peter chapter 1, it asks us this, are you amazed? Are you wowed at salvation? Or are you more thrilled with attentive to your new toy, new furniture, your favorite football team, Clothes. Do we see verses 10 to 12 that we're going to read in a moment is boring? That's the question. If we do, then you don't see it. If we do, we do not understand what it is saying. Now, as I read, notice there's a context. We've been in this context. It's, it's called chapter 1 of 1 Peter. This is the tail end of this first section, starting with verse 3. And he has said, and here's the question you ask yourself, is he referring to me? He has said to the church, believers, God the Father, came and acted upon you, causing you to be born again, producing in you a living hope, something that is dynamic and alive within you. It's a hope in what He's promised, a future inheritance, even though and in the midst of 
having temporal pain and grief and frustration down here. But he said the essence of that faith in verses 8 and 9 is that though you don't see this one, Jesus, you've never seen him with your eyes yet. You love him. And now this morning, he tacks on to the, to the tail end of this section, verses 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Notice the first phrase. Because this is his whole topic. Concerning this salvation. What's salvation? The one he's been talking about. Look at the end of verse 9. Obtaining. Is this you? Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation. Salvation, that word here, is the key. Meaning, you're rescued. To be saved if you're drowning is an awesome thing. My son Justin would testify. That's what happens when you go to the beach with Trish and Teresa. <laughs> Don't do that, Joe. Salvation is the essence of this text. Now think about it. We're entering the Christmas season. You see all around us? There are untold millions of people rushing around in stores and putting lights on houses and on their trees that they drag into the house like we do. Here's Christmas again, and they have no idea. They have no cognizant, conscious awareness that they need to be saved. From God. And that's what Christmas is about. It is about a baby being born in order to die, in order to save sinners. People can know, excuse me, not know that they need to be saved, but desperately need to be saved. It was true of those who were 
early in the morning playing cards on the battleship Arizona at Pearl Harbor, five minutes before their life ended when they were bombed by the Japanese. They didn't know they needed to be saved from something. But they did. Now listen to what Peter says. These prophets, he means long before Jesus showed up on Christmas. He means the Old Testament Scripture. These prophets, he says, foretold this, the climax of redemptive history. The coming of Christ, His death, His resurrection. Just, just for instance, think about 700 years before Jesus was born, the, the prophet Micah, he gets this information by the Holy Spirit to prophesy and to write. And says, quote Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. That's Micah. And I think, Micah, okay, I'm, I'm obedient, God. I gave the word and he scratches his head the heck does that really look like? What does it mean? It's hard for him to picture exactly what this is pointing to. And there are hundreds of prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures that are all pieces of a large puzzle. And as each prophet prophesies, they're trying to figure out how their piece or their pieces fit with other pieces. and They can't see the finished work of what it really is going to look like. That's what Peter's saying. Concerning this salvation though, they, the Hebrew prophets, prophesied over a long period. Of time. Let me, I just want to concentrate then the next 10 minutes real briefly. This salvation that's laid out there. God the Creator created all that is not God for His glory. He did not create because He was hungry. Farmers create pens to put pigs in in order to raise because they need to eat. God did not create in order to get anything that He did not already have. He created in order to reflect the essence of what He is in creation and ultimately in the creation, mankind made in His image. There is no one superior. There is nothing in existence more ultimate. And every human being will have to give an account. Either rebel against Him or 
joyfully, dependently bow before Him. And then we see in the Hebrew Scripture, mankind rebelled. In Adam, we all said, the idea, Creator, that you are the essence of life, goodness, holiness, beauty, satisfaction, fooey. I want to be that to myself. That was the lie of Satan to our forefather Adam. And that is why every one of us have done exactly the same thing. The entire human race from Adam on has fallen into sin and from the core of our being died to dependence on God. But God's purpose to be glorified in and through the obedience of faith in His creation called humanity, was not going to be denied Him. So He chose a man, Abraham. He said, Abraham, come! And He said, Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that promise, Abraham, is going to be passed down through your son. No, not, not the one that you tried to conjure up called Ishmael through sinful works of the flesh, but through your barren wife, who was barren when she was 24. When she's an old woman, I will cause her by you to become pregnant and give birth to show you all of this is my doing. And so through your son Isaac, not Ishmael. And Isaac, through your son Jacob, not his older twin brother Esau, will this promise be passed down. And Jacob's name was changed to the one who wrestles and struggles with God, meaning Israel. So Abraham, Isaac, and through Jacob, that is, Israel has twelve sons, and those twelve sons become the head of twelve clans that we call the twelve tribes of Israel. God is at work. Biblically, from God's redemptive historical purposes, there are only two peoples. There are the Jews, Israel. Twelve tribes and their progeny. And then there's everybody else called Gentiles. And so God goes to work on His people, Israel, writing a lesson book over a period of a thousand years. So that one day, that lesson book will go to the rest of the world. So he goes to work on them by causing them to go into Egypt. And then 
slowly over a period of 400 years becoming enslaved in Egypt so that He would show His glory by delivering Israel out of slavery under the Pharaoh in Egypt through the Red Sea. And in the wilderness on Mount Sinai, He gives to them the law. He writes it and says, this is what it looks like. This is how you act if you love me. If you trust me, this is what obedience of faith is. And then he filters in specific laws, not for the world, just for the Jews. Like stuff that doesn't in and of itself have any moral consequences, like don't eat pigs. Circumcise your male children on the eighth day. Can't eat shellfish. Do these particular ceremonies commemorating my acts. And then he feeds them manna in the wilderness. It just appears miraculously. Why? Because it is a foreshadowing of the true bread which was to come down out of heaven for which the entire earth was to partake. When God's judgment fell on the hard-hearted, unbelieving Israelites in the wilderness, He says, Moses, take this bronze serpent and hold it up. And I'm going to continue to wipe them out unless they look on the serpent. Why? Because it was a foreshadowing of looking to the cross of Jesus Christ to be delivered from God's judgment. And then they finally, after 40 years, cross over the Jordan River into the promised land, that which was promised hundreds of years earlier to Abraham. This land that he didn't own anything of other than a grave, I'm going to give to your descendants. And they cross over and find rest. But not really. And when you read the Hebrew Scriptures as their history goes on, you know there's no true rest, really. In the New Testament, Hebrew writer makes it clear if they were seeking rest in that land during that time, they wouldn't have continued to seek like they did. And he says they weren't. The saints, the believers were looking to a city that is eternal and heavenly. And then, as the Scriptures unfold, God gives to them the monarchy. And it's so key to what's happening in redemptive history. He says, through this guy, David, through this king, David, I'm going to bring a Savior to the world. And so, all of history in the Scripture. In the Hebrew Scripture is a lesson book being written until the fullness of time. 
where God sends forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And that lesson books teaches the world, through the Jews, it teaches the world all your gods are false. There is only one God. He created and He rules sovereignly over everything that is. It teaches that His goal is to subdue rebellion in the heart of men and women in order to be glorified through them in their joyful, faith-filled obedience. It teaches that those sinners cannot obtain righteousness of their own. It teaches that once I, God, give to a people a pure, absolutely holy, righteous, and perfect law, if they try to take it and say, thank you, I'll do it, and think that by so doing, they have become righteous, he is only demonstrating the depth of the sin of human beings. He's <laughs> but he teaches in that lesson book. No, 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 no. And it's throughout from Genesis to Malachi. The only approach to God whom you have forsaken is to come back to Him in childlike dependence. Specifically, to trust his mercy. More specifically, to trust the mercy of His promise that He would raise up for you a righteous branch out of David. And there's the book. And then the next thing God does in redemptive history takes everybody off guard. No one expecting it. This promised Messiah, it turns out, came, but there were two comings. God split the coming of the promised Messiah, the King, through David. And this was utterly incomprehensible to the Jews to whom Jesus came in the first century. And if you read the Gospels carefully, you should pick that up. They just seem constantly baffled. Who are you? Because, this brings us back to our text, the Old Testament prophets were not told how all of these various different foretellings and prophecies fit together in what the final jigsaw puzzle looks like. And so, Peter writes in our text, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring. What person? Or, or time? 
the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So in other words, you, you get, for instance, 700 years before Christ, Isaiah the prophet writes Isaiah 53 that we heard read this morning about this figure. And he's clear in Isaiah 53. He's of the root of Jesse. Jesse is David's dad. Okay. This is the one promised through David. And he's going to suffer. But others, like Daniel in chapter 7, writes about this figure who is going to come in the clouds of heaven in all of his glory. How do they fit together? They didn't see how those two go together. That there is a first coming. This is why traditionally we call this season Advent season. Meaning coming the first advent, there's a second advent called the second coming. But they didn't see it. And so these prophecies sit in this book, what, what we call the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And what you have in there were writings and prophecies and history and songs and, and, and proverbs and that were written over a period of a thousand years, from about 1400 to 430 B.C. And there's a scripture. And then, God seems to stop speaking. About that time He stopped speaking, that's, if, if you look kind of over there in your Western civilization, area called Greece and Athens, Socrates is running around. I mean, his student Plato will come after him, and Aristotle and Alexander the Great will conquer the world. And you're going for over 400 years. God is not speaking until some crazy looking guy shows up baptizing people. But he wasn't the one. He said, the, as great as you think I am as a prophet, I can't because I'm not worthy to just do the most menial task there is that a slave would do and untie his sandal. And Jesus comes. Okay, you open up the Gospels. Why are they baffled? Because during that period of Hundreds of years between the Testaments, we call it intertestamental, and they got a lot of literature, the Jews. Theology is being developed. That is really when what we know as Judaism started to be developed after the closing of the Old Testament. And so, like many Christians today, and they sell books on them and make movies on them, and they have their varying ideas of how the end times are supposed to happen, so did the Jews. And in their particular kind of charts, 
we, we, there, there's different nuances and disagreements, but we see in general this idea they're waiting for the son of David. They're waiting for the promised Messiah, the kingly figure, to come and to destroy their enemies, to sanctify Israel, God's people, and to bring a heavenly realm and dominion down to earth. That's what they're waiting for. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, they're dumbfounded. John the Baptist finally gets imprisoned, he's starting to scratch his head. I'm still in prison. I've been here for months. Disciples, go to Jesus, talk to Him, ask Him, are you the one or not? Don't get it! It wasn't fitting into the theology. Remember, Jesus asked His Apostles, his close associates, okay, now we've watched this for at least a couple years now. Who do you say I am? You are the Messiah. (laughs) Jesus says, you're right. And you know that because my Father revealed it to you. But it is right at that point where the text of Scripture is clear. From then on, Jesus started to make clear to them, I am going to Jerusalem in order to be killed and rise. And Peter says what? No! Never, Lord! It didn't fit. It took three years at least of constant teaching. And then numerous resurrection appearances with teaching. And then wait in Jerusalem until I pour out the Spirit. Took all of that before ding, 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 it dawns on His apostles how they fit together. And Peter stands up and says, this is that which the prophet Joel prophesied about. And they saw there are two comings. He comes first as the suffering servant. And he inaugurates an age of tension. Because he came to bring the kingdom, the rule and the reign of God unprecedented in all of history. It's come. But not in its consummation yet. And so you have this tension throughout the New Testament. It's here, but it's not yet. The purpose of verses 10 and 11, when Peter writes now, is for us to think about what we've just heard. To us to understand, not just if you were receiving the letter in A.D. 63, but if you're receiving this letter in 2009, he's talking about your place in redemptive history so that you would be moved to deeper gratitude if he's talking about 
you. Verse 10 is the general statement. These prophets prophesied of the grace which was to become to you. The grace of the new covenant. And then verse 11, he gets more specific about what they were searching for when they would see these prophecies. He says, they were seeking to know what person or time. The prophets, they were yearning to see, kicking themselves. Why couldn't I have been born later? To understand, see how it all fits together. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 13, verses 16 to 17. He says one day, But blessed, happy, fortunate are your eyes, those who were standing before Him, are your eyes, for your eyes see and your ears hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people in the past longed to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. He's saying the same thing that Peter's saying. The point is that if we understand what we have read in 1 Peter chapter 1 so far, Peter's saying, If you don't understand how great this is, you're deaf right now. You're blind. You're not seeing. Pray that you see. Beg God to bring repentance for hard-heartedness and short-sightedness and idolatry. They long to see it. They're thinking something is magnificent about what I see. I mean, for 700 years before, there's Isaiah. And he prophesies, quote, But he, this one, the son of David, grandson of Jesse, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Peter, I think he's saying that, and he's saying, Isaiah's going, it's true, I know the Spirit of God came upon me to say it, but who, Lord? How? When? What is this? What, what, what do you mean? How's it going to really look? Peter says they were inquiring what person or time that the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He, that is the Spirit of Christ in them, when He, the Spirit, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. 
It's one thing to see. And we're fortunate. Peter's point is, wake up and see how fortunate you are. It's one thing to see when that jigsaw puzzle is laid out on that kitchen table, finished. I see the picture. It's complete. It's frustrating when you got four pieces and 3,000 more to go. What's it going to look like? This is, listen to what Jesus says after His resurrection on the road to Emmaus to His disciples. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. Okay, wait. That, that means to read or hear read and believe. All that the prophets have spoken. Was it, he's talking about, look at your book. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with the books of Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. He interpreted the sufferings that are there and the glories to follow. The glories to follow don't only mean His resurrection and His ascension. In the context of 1 Peter 1, it means He's caused you Get it? That is a glorious, miraculous, undeserved, eternal, changing event that is subsequent to because it is only founded on the sufferings of Christ. It's one of those glories. And you trust in the future, eternal, imperishable inheritance. It is one of those glories that He purchased, but is still future, not yet, awaiting the second advent coming of Christ. Now notice that in verse 12, Peter gives an answer. He says, here was the answer that the prophets got when they searched and inquired who, what, when. Quote, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they, just I'm going to ask yourself, I have, I've asked myself this week a number of times, do I believe, do I believe what he's writing here? He says, it was revealed to Isaiah and Micah and Malachi and Jeremiah and the prophets. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves in their prophecies, but you. 
but you. In the things that have now been announced to you. Through those who preached, literally, the gospel, the good news, to you. By the Holy Spirit, who is sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. He says He was revealed to them. They weren't serving themselves. They were serving a future time. And Peter, in AD 63, is able to write to born-again humans, which means, by definition, Christians, Jew or Gentile. He's serving in his prophecies you. Isaiah, what you're prophesying is for hundreds of years from now. You don't see it, and you're not going to see it in your lifetime. But they're going to look at what you wrote in Isaiah 53, and they're going to see that matches the reality of what happened. David's greater son. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, says it this way. All of these Old Testament saints and prophets died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and welcomed them from a distance. That's what Peter is saying. Jesus says, they would have loved to seen what you see. But didn't. This week. How many of us will, maybe one time, hopefully seven times, at least, get away from all the children and work and play and every distraction and commune? with this God while reading stuff like we just read. I mean, I, I'm think, I don't even know how else to say it. I just know by my experience, I think you know by yours, the difference between choosing not to do that and choosing to do it. And it does, it means time. One of the biggest lies in the world concerning our children or concerning our God is I have quality time, not quantity. 
quantity time, by definition, is intricate to quality. They, by God's design, were writing a lesson book so that when Christ would come, the message from the Jews would go to those other peoples called the Gentiles. Every tribe, tongue, nation, peoples. And they would go with a book. Paul said it this way in Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written, he means the Hebrew Scripture, your Old Testament. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. He writes, in 1 Corinthians 10.11. Now these things, as he's unfolding the books of Moses, these things happen to them as an example. And they were written down in Hebrew, in the Scripture, for our instruction, Christians, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. In chapter 4 of Romans, Paul writes... Now, not for Abraham's sake only was it written that it was credited to him as righteousness. But it was written, why? So that you who live in 2009, who have come to embrace Christ, for your sake was it written also. Now, finally, notice the last part of verse 12. These things, this is the crux of this passage. Take everything we've heard for the last 45 minutes. Now, he says, you see it? These things are preached. The things that he's talking about are those things... Quote, that have now been announced, told to you, announced to you, how? Through other sinful human beings being saved. That's interpretive. But it's accurate. Through those people who proclaimed, preached the gospel, the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Peter says to them, and there's no problem with the jump. 
He means exactly to you. He says the Holy Spirit is the one who brought the gospel to you. Right now, I'm trying to make time to write just a little short, teeny spiritual biography. I'm looking back 28 years right now. And I really like doing that. Oh, it's so evident to me that what I'm writing about 1981 as a 19-year-old messed up sinful wretch is that I'm writing about what God sovereignly by the Holy Spirit was doing in my life. That's what he's saying. The Holy Spirit brought to you the message of the person, good news of Jesus Christ. And he did it through preaching. He says they preached by the means of the Holy Spirit. Notice the importance of words. Of truth. Through preaching, he says, is vital. Truth. Let me just, stupid example. I did nothing different than what I'm doing right now by saying I did nothing different. In other words, in this sense, I used vocal cords and I made sounds. The problem is, those first sounds I made make no sense to you. Because you do not understand that language. Meaning in words is everything. Words came to you, he says. And it's the difference between heaven and hell. It is this salvation he's talking about which came to you through preaching meaning clarity of meaning meaning words is of utmost importance because according to this text the Holy Spirit works through it. To the extent that we as Christians in our Christian life, we as local churches and especially we as pastors are not clear with the truth, the Bible. To that extent, the Holy Spirit is not applying we are all made in the image of God. He has made us with a mind to ponder. 
and a will to choose in words. Content in those words are vitally important in bringing people to Christ and in maintaining those people in Christ called sanctification. The gospel, that is Christianity, by its essence is a word, clarity, meaning, plus Holy Spirit thing. The idea that many of you, and I certainly have in my Christianity, just heard people blurt out, oh, we don't get into theology, we just want to love Jesus. (laughs) Meaning, what? Other than we don't want to define who Jesus is, or define what He did on the cross, or define what His resurrection means, or define what it is to be a Christian, or define what it is, and you can go on and on. That kind of statement, I say it fearfully, is biblically stupid. Just doesn't work. This salvation, hear him now. now. He says, angels long desire to look into. I don't think he means because they're not allowed. I think think he means this. (laughs) They're outsiders to this. Angels, Gabriel, Michael, cannot fathom what it is to be a sinner being saved by this person of Isaiah 53 and existing in an eternal inheritance unendingly as a saved person. Under the mercy of the Lamb of God. That's why I think Peter says, angels long to look. Meaning, if these creatures who are not part of this salvation long to look how great God is and what it would mean, they're thrilled. He's saying, Christian, how much more ought you Be bowled over by it, day in and day out. In the New Testament then, this salvation, we have the fulfillment of what the prophet spoke in Christmas. He came! And we see now more clearly in the puzzle, there are two comings. There's a second coming. And chapter 1 of 1 Peter has been clear. On the day of His revealing is His second coming. So here we are again at Christmas. And what we are celebrating and looking forward to and anticipating with all the cultural stuff we tie to it is the wonder of the fulfillment of the prophecies in the Old Testament. Testament 
of that pivotal point in all of human history when God became a human being. Came the first time to suffer and to die. And we'll come back one more time. Listen as I close here. The way the Hebrew writer puts it. Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages in order to do away with sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David, was sacrificed once to take away sins of many people. And He will appear a second time. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. And so that's the tension we live in. Christmas, as we celebrate it, brought us this mind-blowing and in your pain, wonderful tension. He has come. Are you in Him? Has He made you alive in Him? Has He caused you to be born again? Understand right now in 2009 that you do fit into redemptive history very consciously in God's eternal purposes. He called Isaiah to serve you. Father, I ask for the the mercy upon every one of us here to be drawn by the glories that follow the cross of Your Son to spend time with You in the Word this week. To the point that we know your Holy Spirit has filled us with power to deal with the day. In Jesus' name.